This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Tim Prati will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. All right, so welcome everybody. Uh, we're doing our podcast a little different this time. We've got a great guest uh, in George Robertson. Uh, George is a longtime veteran of fixed income and credit markets on Wall Street and developing rapidly a social media following in the FinTwit universe. Uh, and the reason why I've been fascinated with what George has been writing about and talking about is is the issue of fiscal dominance, is the idea that while we and CNBC can become absolutely obsessed with Fed and the idea that the Fed and interest rate hikes and wherever they take the, the, the dot plot and the SEP uh, is, is determining where the economy is, is going to go. And one thing I think we've learned in this cycle already is that it's not as easy as that. And in an era where fiscal policy is so aggressive and our deficits are so high uh, that we need to have a better understanding of the way uh, the Fed balance sheet, the way fiscal spending, and the way monetary policy all interact. Uh, so with that, I'd like to introduce George. And George, if you could take five minutes and just talk about your uh, really interesting and colorful career on Wall Street, just to give everybody a sense of just how steeped in all this stuff you are. Okay. Um, first, thank you very much for the compliment of having me uh, um, uh, share this time with you guys. Um, it, as I understand, a, a lot of this is wealth management and retail oriented. And I have traded huge size and I did a good job, but for the life of me, I can't figure out how to trade my personal account. So <laughs> I have the greatest respect for those that can actually be effective um, directly with, um, with so-called retail. Um, now, having said that, what are my institutional, my backgrounds, uh, qualifications that might make me a useful voice here is that in 81, um, I was a retail broker, and uh, but I had managed to uh, destroy great swaths of wealth for the dentists of Toronto. <laughs> and realizing that I likely could not get my teeth fixed thereon, or they would want to get me in there to see if it was safe yet, um, I just picked up whatever money I had, which wasn't much, and one-way ticket and went to New York. Uh, uh, a friend of mine who was later uh, memorialized in Michael Lewis uh, as the um, human piranha was actually a, a boyhood boyhood friend. And um, I can't say he was the nicest guy, but he was a decent guy. And he helped me and introduced me to Salma Brothers. And I said I would take any job and I was full of um, just bizarre, almost hostility and aggressiveness, which was at that time just the right thing to do to get into Salman. <laughs> And I spent the first, I, I'd say several months, uh, I guess they wanted to see if I was going to hang around as a secretary, just a secretary for Henry Kaufman and his flow of funds analysis. And that, in hindsight, was a, just a tremendous education, if not um, has sort of damned me going forward. This flow of funds was based upon the Z tables, which the Fed still produces, uh, comes out quarterly, and it just tallies up all the stock and flow of the U.S. economy. And it's my habit to always look that way, to consider that either to say it's not important or to often get a jump on, on people uh, who don't do so. Um, the problem with this analysis, it didn't work. Uh, it, it, uh, it, it, it went on and on and on about the uh, size of the fiscal of the deficit, uh, the amount of bonds. It took a demand supply view on U.S. Treasuries and Henry Kaufman and his side, um, his peer, uh, Wojcielower over at First Boston, were, were just, they're wrong. And eventually they sort of petered away and disappeared off the scene by late 80s. After that job, um, I went oh, George, let me, I'm sorry to interrupt you. The, the, Henry, the Henry Kaufman isn't the KKR Kaufman. I've got the wrong guy. No, no, this is Henry Kaufman. He, he used to be okay. bigger than the KKKR uh, Kaufman. <laughs> 
but uh, he's not really. I don't. I don't know if many people remember him now. But okay. uh, you know, in the eighties and nineties, he was big stuff. Um, and after that, I, I started trading interest rate swaps at uh, at CIBC. I ran their desk up in Toronto. Went back to Toronto. Uh, from there, I because I didn't think I was making enough money. I mean, for myself, not not for the bank. Uh, I picked up a job with a self-confessed total lunatic, John Mohern, ah. uh, who is paired with a equally able and skilled risk manager, Izzy Englander of Millennium. And between the two of them, they just beat the hell out of me. And I managed to hang in there for a while, uh, for two years, until uh, until John saw fit to try to kill Ivan Boski. And then the whole thing fell apart. Uh, after that... I uh, I traded five years for a Jap bank, a Japanese bank, excuse me. Um, and then I was picked up by Cargill to be the chief investment officer of their in-house hedge fund. Uh, that uh, ran into mortgage guys. And sometimes I think the mortgage industry is like Yozarian, ready to, it, all it does is try to destroy my career uh, every five to 10 years. Um, but uh, that was that. But I did a good job, so Cargill rewarded me by making me head of equities, um, which was a great shift from moving from fixed income and applying my derivatives and, and all my flow experience into equities. Did well there. Then the Bass family office down in Fort Worth picked me up, and I was one of their guard dogs slash attack dogs. Uh, and it was just uh, go out and make money in any way that's legal and also protect the family wealth. Just a dream job. Just absolute uh uh, the most fun I've ever had in my life. Did you move uh, down to Texas for that? Yeah, I moved down to Fort Worth. Okay. Um, and then, uh, and as you can see, you, st you must start to get a little suspect of how many jobs I've had. Uh, after had that, I thought it was going to be worth a lot of money. And so I went out to get my own hedge fund. Uh, in the meantime, I was in, um, had a great time getting it started. But I ran into, this is my, this is my excuse. I'm going to stick with it. I ran into the auto downgrades and uh, my confidence in my capital, which at a startup is just one or two large blocks. I uh, just had the, the heck scared out of them with what was going on Visteon and Ford and GM and all the, all the things. Delphi. So, Delphi. Right. And although I learned a lot uh, and I, I actually broke even when others were like blue mountain were down 20% or so um, that wasn't enough for the capital. And uh, so uh, the fund was dissolved. Uh, from there, uh, I spent a brief time helping out the credit problems of a, of a hedge fund that was going south by actually getting into movie production. Uh, so I was wandering around uh, Wilshire Boulevard taking meetings. That was great fun. <laughs> but where I thought I, I'd really like finally scored huge and could relax a bit was uh, Morgan Stanley Investment Management picked me up to run the long duration business uh, for MSIM. Uh, and across the hall were the same old mortgage guys. I think they actually were the same old mortgage guys. From they were actually the guys from Cargill. <laughs> well, no, but they're, you know, they knew each other. They've probably right. been on the same ski trips that year. Right, right, right. Um, and Morgan Stanley Investment Management, MSM, was gutted uh, through the mortgage crisis. And in fact, I think we were, we were in the center of the storm uh, for the whole 2008 to 2012 uh, process. Uh, and I learned a lot. Uh, I learned a lot about flows. I learned actually what are the drivers in the market. Um, I This is probably another two hours conversation sometime, but it definitely was not the home market that did, did the damage. It was actually the AAA tranches that were held in common by about five or six huge shops that um, were contaminated, if you will, by mm -hmm. what was going on in the rubbish. Mm -hmm. And that is what caused the the mortgage uh, the mortgage slash housing crisis of uh, 2008 2009. I'm going to stick right. with that. It yeah. certainly was not long U.S. Treasuries. I'm blameless. Yeah. Um, right. So anyway, I, I I've been trying uh, since then. I've actually uh, tried hard. And if anyone listening to this wants to chase me down, please. Uh, I, I tried very hard in professional rugby. I wanted to bring professional rugby to the United States. Did not succeed. Uh, cost me a lot of money, and so here I am. Were you a, were you a rugby player up in Canada growing up? Yeah, I was a rugby player, and actually, the, my last game was five years ago. Um, oh, is that right? Right. There's a role in rugby uh, called prop, 
where yeah. it's an attribute to be fat and slow and somewhat strong. Uh, <laughs> so you can play forever, you know, as long as your neck holds up. <laughs> and uh, that that's what that's what I did. And an old colleague of mine is Mark Hantho. The, he's been a very ex- successful investment banker. Did you ever play with Hantho up in Canada? I, I know the name. Yeah, I, I uh, we we used to meet all the time at Saranac uh, for the Can Am Rugby Tournament. Great right. fun, and right. um, I, I know of him. I can't say well, we're friends. I, I want to ask you a couple questions about your career. I promise that we would have a quick disclaimer here, and just this is not investment advice. It doesn't sound like investment advice. It is not investment advice. We are here to talk about markets. We are here to educate and better understand George's thesis around. Uh, the importance of fiscal dominance. This is not investment advice. But I want to go back to the beginning. So you started, you were at Solomon Brothers for a number of years. Yes. And this is the good friend, Ranieri days. Yeah, good friend, Ranieri, Craig Coates, uh, you know, um, Mortera, the whole pack. All of the people that were the stars of uh, Liars Poker. That's right. Right, right. So anybody listening to this, if, if you want to have an understanding of what Wall Street, the, the peak, the top of Wall Street looked like in the 1980s, Michael Lewis's book that I think made him famous, right? That was his first big. Yeah, that was the breakout book. That was the breakout book. Uh, yeah. Absolutely great, great book uh, yeah. that everybody should. Everybody should. The, the yep. first and I, I, really... I've actually had a few games of Liars Poker with Meriwether and the crew. Uh, oh, that's know, great. With a dollar bill that had five zeros. So that was right. especially Meriwether... valuable. Meriwether, mm-hmm. who became somewhat infamous with long-term mm-hmm. capital many years yeah. later, all of the yeah. geniuses. Uh, and then and then you mentioned Mulheron and, 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 and Izzy Englander. Mulheron, obviously, also infamous for trying to kill or, or threatening to I kill. I for famous. It helps my CV a little bit, but go ahead. <laughs> but yeah. Izzy, Englander is, Izzy Englander is the president and CEO of Millennium. And if right. those don't know, Millennium is a multi-platform hedge fund. So it's called pod shops is what people call them. And pod shops can be one guy who's a single operator, or it could be a whole team of 10 or 15 guys. They tend to focus on one area of the market. And Millennium is right up there with SAC, now 0.72, and Citadel is really the most successful. And Izzy, we talked about this the other day, George, Izzy really, his his genius is as a risk manager. He himself- yeah. He came out of the Amex uh, options. Uh, I think he had a few stocks that he that he's running. Uh, joined John, and he basically stopped trying to trade or or be thoughtful because uh, John did more than enough for anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he became, bar none, the the most able risk manager that I have ever come across. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I briefly ran a trading business and managing risk uh, is hard because it very often means you got to fire a lot of people. And very often it means you got to fire a lot of really talented people. Not saying Izzy England is a bad guy, but the, the, the job of managing risk in that context is incredibly difficult because of the human element of it. Yeah, he, he would take it... Um whatever level he set for either the monthly or the, or the quarterly drawdowns, he would take it down to two decimal point. And it, it didn't matter who the heck you were. Uh, if you, <laughs> if you breach that, you're gone. Like that afternoon, actually you wouldn't yeah. even go back to your desk when you're, you're, um, you're right. in. Oh, the famous tap on the shoulder. Uh, you know, yeah. I worked in equity research for seven years previous to coming to this job at Wealthfest and you know, all the time you would, just about every day, the salespeople covering a Millennium or a Citadel or an SAC, they'd have to update their spreadsheets on who was there and who wasn't. Because if you have 50% turnover, that means the average person's only making it for two years. That's right. And those shops too have a, a deep bench. They, yes. they, they have two, three, four, sometimes five people who are just as able as the guy who is running the desk uh, to in seconds take over everything. All right, so why don't we get into kind of your thesis? Uh, I heard you talk about this on a Twitter Spaces with uh, the great Bob Elliott. How, when did you become uh, colleagues with Bob? I uh, I can't say as ever colleagues. I met him for okay. drinks once, uh, and it's just been over the last year. And um, I think of all the people, I can't say we we agree on much. Yeah. But in terms of 
um, being able to be insightful, uh, useful criticism, and also having a reasonable stance himself, if not an excellent stance. Yeah. Uh, he, he became a, a, a must follow for me. And um, I, I owe a lot of development of my ideas uh, to interaction with Bob. He, yeah. he is an excellent person. Yeah. Uh, I have not had the opportunity to meet him, but uh, he has, uh, I love following his work. Uh, I think he really is truly outstanding. And, you know, if you're the guy who taught the intro to macro class at Bridgewater, you probably have a pretty good idea of what you're talking about. That, that's uh, that is must respect right off the bat. Yeah, sure. All right. So why don't we why don't we give you the floor here, George, and you can talk about kind of the history as you laid it out uh, for Drew and I earlier of how fiscal dominance has come to bear, has has come to be where it is, and why it's important in looking at markets going forward. Okay, I I think what I, what I was starting out. Um, what I'll start with is that for 30 years until about 2012, I'm not saying it was easy, but the craft in terms of make, being able to make a living with bonds and equity uh, was available to anyone who would put the time into understanding the Federal Reserve, how they operated, uh, what they looked at, uh, what they wanted done in the economy. Uh, and that wasn't too hard to figure out by looking at, at various flows of funds. Uh, for a long time, it was M2. Then it was, uh, you know, just, you know, not look at what they say, but uh, what they did in terms of how much do they raise Fed funds? 50 basis points, 25 basis points. Basis point, of course, is one one hundredth of a percent. Uh, and uh, you could you could actually make a good living um, and even become anticipatory in terms of, well, this happened in the economy. That happened to the liquidity. So we know where the Fed's going to go. Um, and sometimes you're wrong, but more often than not, you can make a, um, uh, do the right trades. And this spilt into equities and this spilt in. So the Fed tied everything together. Now, of course, the great, you know, great craft had to go into figuring one company out versus another or, or what the, uh, the industry is going to do the, today or this week or this month. Uh, that was not attached to this, but in general, you can make a living, or at least it had to be your starting point was to understand the Fed. And it it's it it wasn't the easiest thing to do. And those who did understand the Fed weren't too keen to tell you anyway. I mean, why would they? <laughs> so uh, that was what the trade was. That's what the the job was. Um, and then uh, in 2012 on, I noticed that it wasn't working. Now. The Fed, of course, had got moved from being sort of mystical and didn't say word to suddenly they're just, you know, logaria. Uh, it just went on and on and on and on. And, and they call that actually Delphic. It's actually a formal policy stance, uh, the Delphic Fed. And you couldn't shut them up. And every reserve president was out there talking and everyone was talking and the testimony of the chair was talking. Michelle Smith, who is probably the best PR press agent in the world, uh, really corralled what used to be a very aggressive and very argumentative press corps that that was with the Fed, but after the um, uh, the GFC, the uh, 2008 2009, if you wanted to talk to the Fed, you would do exactly what Michelle Smith said, and so therefore she was able to manage and bludgeon the Fed uh, Fed's media coverage into one voice, which is just a huge huge uh, um, achievement. But if you didn't really follow that, if you didn't follow the sentiment and you didn't, you, you realize that the Fed basically disappeared behind the cloud of zero interest rate policy uh, because they couldn't go through zero, um, you no longer had a sighting on where the heck the Fed actually was in terms of, of um, actual numbers. And the, the proof of what I say is the fact that the Fed itself admitted that one of their main objective was to raise Fed funds up to 2% and hold it there, and they completely failed. They never did it. Uh, they never succeeded in that. Uh, and so they, it went unnoticed. Everyone said, well, you know, 1% inflation is not that bad, and uh, the economy's chugging along, and, and so the Fed must be doing a good job. And then they did a, a very exciting quantitative easing, and they did a quantitative this and that, and all sorts of words. By gosh, you, you've never had so many white papers on what the Fed, from the Fed, what they're going to yeah. do. It was it was fantastic. It was a 
a softball pitch for any formation of sentiment or idea of what the Fed does, because the Fed still was held near sacred in terms of its power, which was considerable before then. But from 2012 on, say, roughly, it didn't work. It just didn't work in terms of what their mandates were. Also, they didn't have any success with employment. They 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 constantly had to sort of shrug and say, well, we're going to get U6 up or we're going to do this or that. But they weren't succeeding in, in, in employment. So looking at what they did and what the effect was, um, not what they say they're doing and what was popularly believed to do under the bludgeoning of Michelle Smith, the Fed wasn't working. It it was it was just a, a humongous now eight trillion dollar balance sheet, and it was just sitting there. It 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 really was not being at all effective in anything. And then you would say, okay, well they're macro prudential and they're managing banks. Well, we found out in Silicon Valley that they weren't really good at that either. Um, so, not going into whys and wherefores, it it was startling to discover that what was central to my life, my career didn't exist. And that is a very bold thing to say. And uh, it ended up having um, uh, guys like Joe Weisenthal block me. And every, I was just a pain in the ass because I would ask everyone, well, what's the reaction function? And they go, oh, the reaction function is, no, no, what is it? Like 25 basis points of Fed funds equals what in terms right. of employment or inflation in terms of their dual mandate? Um, okay, QE. What is the reaction function of QE? One trillion equals what in terms of inflation and um, uh, employment? And it, nobody can do it because it doesn't exist, and it still doesn't exist. So this is this is uh, for me personally. It was like ah, like th this is like uh, almost a crushing blow. And what was very easy to do for me to do, or at least you could prosper suddenly had no value. It, it, it had no value to understand what the Fed was actually doing. What became valuable was to understand its sentiment that the Fed produced. Mm. Uh, you know, that, well, this was a bad metric and the Fed doesn't like it and 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 they say bad things about it. And that was it. There, there, and that was what set the market. And I don't think it's, um, it's not a mystery to me why, why Citadel hired Bernanke. And he's sitting there. Um, I think Citadel's onto this game, and it's become a sentiment market, uh, and it's been so for a long time. Anyway, this this all went uh, sort of cruising along, and the prior to this, the Fed's ability was maintained by the uh, the, the the law that maintain, maintained a certain balance between mandatory and discretionary um, parts of the budget. Um, and what I think this, these laws came from mostly when, when Congress was dominated by the Democrats because they didn't want their, their progressive measures uh, to be dismantled by the next GOP that would come into power periodically. Um, and they, they called various social services, health, education, welfare, all the things that you know Reagan would go on and on in, that, in his sites, mandatory. And it slowly crept from about maybe 40% of the budget when it first came in to, I, right now it's about 70, 30, 70, 20, 75, 25. And it grew every year, every time we had a Democratic Congress. Now, this is not a value judgment. I'm, I'm not saying that's good or bad. Um, I'm sure a lot of progress was made on the fact that certain key elements of the budget were made mandatory. But what it did is it presented a stability. And then on top of that was the cudgel of the debt ceiling. Uh, which forced the fiscal uh, flow into the economy to be relatively stable and steady so that you could you could have a good idea what it was going to do for the next five years, 10 years, and so on. Um, this empowered the Fed to be able to do very little to actually steer the economy. I call it a trim tab. I think other people call it that way too. But rather than just a huge dip in altitude or or drive up in altitude, they could just trim the airlines a little bit, and that would re re mostly resume the course of the plane. Um, as And the reason this worked was because of the stability of the fiscal inflows. Well, COVID blew it all to hell. It just, it just, uh, it was, as far as any sort of analysis on a budget point of view, it was akin to world war. And uh, matter of fact, a great paper by Sargent, uh, who I think is a Nobel Prize winner, and Hall, 
uh, came out with the fact that uh, that uh, this was uh, World War Three. That was I, I, sort of a ghastly joke, but that's I guess that's economist humor. Um, that being the case, uh, as in World War One, World War Two, and now COVID, um, Sergeant Hall's point was that this has swept away the Fed. That the Fed is now either a funder of the fiscal program or is out of the way, but they're no longer effective. Uh, the market still doesn't buy this. Uh, they're, they're still going on with the with the usual interaction of uh, economic indicators versus what the Fed wants. Uh, they're very, very enthralled with the fact that this is a record Fed funds hike when all the data shows that the Fed is still, as far as monetary policy goes, still at ease. Uh, there's no signs that zero to five and 530 has done anything to the economy. What is doing things to the economy is this uh, just massive flow from zero off the mean to about six trillion at its most, and it's still being maintained to some degree with various other ideas. Uh, um, the Inflation Reduction Act was was sort of a, um, a refresher for this flow. That uh, it it is what is determining all now. Now, yeah. however, however, Jan twenty second on Jan two thousand twenty two on. Uh, you know, with um, Jamie Dimon declaring that the recession is imminent because he's a believer in the Fed and so on. And I, I you know, why wouldn't he? Um, the stock market is key to that. There's this very significant tightening by the Fed that will continue when the data doesn't show any signs of it. So the right. stock market being sort of self-reinforcing. Uh, and I, I think the uh, zero trade dates to expiry option plays and all this, uh, you know, this harvesting of sentiment, if you will, uh, has carried on to this date. Um, I would say that Marjorie Green and Matt Getz, as horrifying as that sounds, even Lauren Brobart, is far more important than anything Cash and Carry or even Powell is saying these days. Um, okay. And uh, that Cash is and that's Kerry. my sense. That's my sense of humor. Uh -huh. All right. So let's go. Let's go back to because I think this is all incredibly important in the political side of it. You know, I read somewhere I was reminded of Cheney saying to somebody during the George W. Bush administration, Reagan proved deficits don't matter. So the 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 austerity that was once a part of uh, Republican politics really has faded quite a bit. And you mentioned Marjorie Taylor Greene and Getz as really the only members of Congress, for whatever motivations, that are really going to hold McCarthy's feet to the fire here in a very painful way. Now, who knows where it goes? We're going towards a government shutdown. The Senate is not going to agree to these cuts. Uh, so we'll see how much will they have. But uh, I want to go all the way back to 09. Because I think of coming out of the great financial crisis, uh, Obama took a lot of heat from the left for not stimulating more, right? Yeah. I, we spent, like, as I remember the number being $850 billion, and the MMT crowd looks at it and goes, see, there's no inflation from fiscal spending. We do not have an inflation problem. Inflation is dead. We should have spent $2 trillion. We should have spent $3 trillion. And I feel like that uh, and the combination of the fact that basically both parties stopped worrying about inflation. I mean, I always say my whole career, if you were the guy on the desk who said, I'm really worried about this CPI print or I'm really worried about inflation, people would be like, dude, go bother somebody else with that nonsense. So it, so it, it, to me, the phenomenon of all of the fiscal spending that we have gotten to with the COVID response and the $6 trillion above trend that you mentioned is really about passivity and, 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 and just a belief that inflation was dead. And as long as inf inflation is dead, you can spend as much as you want. My feeling now, though, is we've had the epiphany that, oh, maybe inflation's not dead. And is, it, and is it inflation expectations that are now reflected in the 10-year, and that is now having a meaningful impact on markets? Not so much what the Fed has done, but what is happening at the long end of the curve. I know that was a whole lot, but your thoughts on that? Well, I, just to be a disturber, I guess, but I actually uh, subscribe to this idea, is that Growth now, if it is a fiscal world, 
is nominal, which means inflation is only a part of real. And therefore, inflation is not a bad thing. And hyperinflation, which I don't see it's possible that with the 60 trillion net value that the U.S. has, will ever come about. Uh, we will never, ever be in Argentina. Uh, we might get pretty interesting, but this is good for the equity. And so the U.S. Treasury 10-year rising from, you know, say, you know, 340 several months ago to now uh, looks like it's going to visit 5% is actually a sign of how powerful and strong the surge in NGDP is. Now, this could all go astray. I mean, with such a force, there's all sorts of problems that can develop. Um, we do need a Fed, but I don't really see the rise in 10-year treasuries as being a bad thing. Um, now, of course, this is like my first job was to trade treasuries. So, you know, heck, we saw housing, we saw we saw all sorts of things that were were continued to trundle along, whether the treasury was at 10% or 5% or went up back to six or it had, it had little to do with the actual growth because of this NGDP. And a better way to look at this is, uh, is uh, this is fisherian stuff uh, that fed funds equal inflation plus, plus real growth. And a bond guy, I think can legitimately take ideas of fed funds and just extend and build a curve right out to 10 years. And if you think that the Fed funds right now is not reflective of where it should be, there's still a U.S. Treasury curve, which is very steep and, and very, very bullish or supportive of the economy. But it is, of course, not translated as such to those who are trading equity. Um, I think it will, but I could be all wet. It might never happen. Well, but You make an important point that I don't think a lot of people understand. It was funny. You and I talked about this when we spoke the other day. We were talking about when Morgan Stanley and Dean Witter got together, and it was Barton Biggs and Byron Wien, and they were the white shoe class of equity strategy on Wall Street. And in came a much more blue-collar Dean Witter and a guy named Peter Canello. And it was – so in those years, Peter – Byron and Barton were both quite bearish and both thought that we had an inflation problem. And I, I was still a kid at this point, but I can remember Canelo saying to those guys, making the point that you're making right now, you guys don't get it. If inflation accelerates, corporate profits grow faster. And mm -hmm. that, that point is important. Companies report earnings in nominal terms, right? They're not mm -hmm. looking at, well, this was real growth and this was with pricing growth. They don't care about what volumes is. They care about what gross profit dollars are. And gross profit dollars are expressed in nominal terms. So I, I think that's an important point that you make. If we could have a situation with sort of controlled 2%, 3%, 4% inflation, that is a big positive for corporate earnings. Yes, the... Um a couple of things. However, if one feels the Fed is still empowered to make inflation what it wants and and still has that clout, um, and I know there's a lot of guys brighter and better than me who think that, then that disconnect between corporate earnings and and equity value will not come about because the market is looking ahead to when the Fed will succeed. And the Fed keeps going on, well, it's cumulative, it's lagging, it's there, trust us. It, it will appear. So I, I can understand the bearish view uh, based upon that understanding of the Fed. Now, the other thing that's going on with earnings is that um, uh, th there's an earnings that's given out by the BA, Bureau of Economic Analysis, the BEA, the NIPA tables, which has corporate profit. And for a while, I didn't quite understand it, but then I, um, someone uh, actually gave me a great tip, is um, that the regional Federal Reserve profit is in there. I don't know why, uh, but that's in the national profit thing. And as they start to pay um, interest on reserve balances, it, it's there, there's a hit of of about a, a, a one in one point no 170 billion bucks to profit, which makes it looks like the profit is coming out down, which makes it it uh, in sync with the S and P earnings. Uh, I use uh, Schiller's Yale. SP earnings uh, uh, table. Um, but if you take out that 
that um, loss that the the Federal Reserve is supposed to be experiencing right now, and just look at the private sector, um, corporate profits are, as you say, they're just off they go. The second thing that's going on is I think the S and P 500 earnings are the sort of the, the the key note for how to figure out earnings. And I think that we've had a huge change in the most heavily weighted companies in the S and P 500, who no longer require or seek to have a discrete or orderly progression of increase of earnings quarter to quarter. I don't think Jeff Bozos gives a damn about where his earnings are. Um, he just cares about the clout and the equity value of the company. Um, and then on top of that, uh, all these guys are, have uh, massive money piled up uh, through the, you know, the so-called double Irish Dutch and various offshore tax schemes. So I think what they're doing is they're, they're, they're I think it's manipulation. Uh, and I think the SEC should be interested. Uh, okay, I you know if Jeff Bozos knocks on my door tomorrow, I'm, I'm going to deny I even said this. Uh, but there, there is, there seems to be that the the largest managers of of corporates with the heaviest weights in the S and P 500 have totally bought into the Fed mantra um, that that's going around right now, and they're trying to manage their earnings first to avoid paying taxes in the U.S., but also to move them forward a year, two years from now. So as that, um, you know, they can get past the storm and then have earnings sort of warehouse so that they can take care of it when it gets rough. The trouble with this is that it isn't getting rough. And um, I, I think sooner or later, there's going to be some interest in terms of like, you know, maybe it, maybe it comes about with the um, FTC action that's on, just started with the Amazon is like, what are you guys making? What are you actually doing? Um and anyway, I look at the national accounts, and I know they're doing much, much better than they say. Right. It, it's interesting because the other side of the coin is when you look at small businesses. I always follow the NFIB, the National Federation of Independent Businesses. And that, and, and of course, that's a soft data, right? That is somebody just reporting. It isn't what they're putting to the IRS. And, and what small businesses are saying is that they are under more pressure is that mm -hmm. earnings uh, are being pressured here. What it, It's interesting on the earning side, because this year, I think that I was wrong. I would have guessed that um, S&P earnings would have been probably below, trending below 220. And the fact is they seem to be trending above 235 right now. Now they have hooked lower over the last few weeks as we get a little bit closer to the end of this quarter. Um, but Look, the, the fact that you've made here is has been borne out. Um, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And I, and I think, a, I think a, a big problem, and now I'm going to get a little political, that without an active Fed, um, the U.S. has been thrown into a gilded age, too, if you will. Um, and uh, that usually doesn't have a good outcome. And I, you know, just for a view, I, I think that's going to be our case here. And the very strong and powerful corporations are just getting richer and richer, more and more powerful, more and more profitable. And the entrepreneurial uh, lower cohort is having a rough go. Uh, you know, Amazon is eating the lunch of the mom pa retailers down Main Street. It, it's happening, uh, just like Walmart did uh, prior. Um, and then by the Fed not being able to control inflation, both either up or down, and also thereby em employment, uh, we're getting just a, a massive shift, uh, you know, a, a big stratification between uh, the Gilded Age top tier versus all the rest. And it's not healthy. No, it's not healthy. Uh, Thomas Philippon, as an economist who's written a book about, uh, that I've written a little bit about, about the lack of antitrust enforcement uh, yes. for the last 30 years, You've got far too many industries that are either monopolies or duopolies. And while he's not saying that every time there's a duopoly, there's collusion, it's a hell of a lot easier to win. There's only two people competing, competing for that dollar. Do everybody say, let's be rational on price here. Let's just let's, let's not fight on share. Let's all be rational on price as opposed to when there's five or six competitors. Yeah, um, they, they, don't, they don't have to have a star chamber and actually collude on pricing. Uh, no. They just know what's up. And right. so, 
you know, uh, this guy knows exactly what that guy's going to do, and and they act accordingly. I think that's going on in the home builders right now. And then a lot of these companies seem to be like buying outside industry, right? Like Amazon acquires Whole Foods. When right. some of the was probably run more effectively, you know, if if they're split. But right, right, and I. I, 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 I sort of muse that where we are right now is similar to where uh, Wintel, I don't know if you, if you remember that, that was uh, Windows and, and, uh, and Telecom, but Wintel was broken up with antitrust actions against Intel and also uh, against Microsoft in the 90s. I, they, they never really broke them up, but they certainly stopped a lot of the, um, the move to just stratification of the markets because of that. So, George, let me help. Let me... Try to help me understand uh, the argument on the 10-year because, look, you, you see a very – I've never seen a, a, an equity market that was more one-factor driven, and that one factor being the 10-year yield. And just like, you know, today as we're speaking, the 10-year uh, market looked like it was going to rally after a very weak day. Yesterday, the 10-year went through 450. This morning, equities were up as the 10-year was back below 450, and then lo and behold, this afternoon – Bonds weaken again. Uh, the ten-year is now threatening 460, and the S&P is rolling over again. It to me, there's a very tangible connection to the mortgage market, and you know maybe it's because I was so influenced by the last cycle, right? We all know as investors, you got to be careful not to be too influenced by the most recent experience. But our most recent experience as forecasters of a deep recession was the great financial crisis and the housing implosion. And that makes me feel maybe uh, like housing is just so important to the consumer. It's so important to how you feel about your wealth and so forth. And to me, if, if, the, if the 10 year stays up here and we could talk about mortgage spreads too, but if we stay up around a seven and a half percent mortgage rate, we're going to see some weakness in housing and we'll see some weakness in the U S economy. I, I, well, why not? I'll, I'll throw the, 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 the wrench into it. Um, I can remember, uh, you know, we, we're all anecdotal, what our, our experience in life. I can remember the first house I bought, a meaningful house, uh, Minneapolis, I got a seven and a quarter mortgage on it. And it was because the mortgage rate was at seven and a quarter that I could afford it. And I did. It was fine. Um, there was many, probably more years than ever since mortgage backs were created, where seven and a quarter was um, not a problem or even conducive to to appreciation of the housing. Um, and I, I guess, you know, when the other thought along with that is that from about ninety on, uh, you know, forget Wall Street and all the gizmos and vector analysis and all the stuff we did with mortgages, which was a bust, total bust. The average well-off dentist, and I don't want to knock dentists because I'm still in terror of them from Toronto days, but the average well-off dentist is far more careful and able to trade the mortgage rate than anybody I've seen in Wall Street. Uh, and uh, you've, you've never seen anybody who is quickly to refi and is not scared at eight because he know he can refi at six. So I think what the mortgage market is up to is trying to figure out where the peak 10-year rate will be as a benchmark for uh, mortgages. So as soon as that, that peak rate occurs, which is higher than now, I think the mortgage, uh, more, uh, there'll be, I, I think, and why not? It's a good story. I think that um, the, the home market will have the second phase up and we'll have a, just a boom in terms of house appreciation and also transactions. And, and what and I'm sorry, what drives that? What drives the boom in appreciation? Just because the 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 first Americans know that the only shot that they have for any wealth creation is not going to be the equity market. It's not going to be their 401k. Um, it's going to be their home. And so everyone is just sitting watching. When do I flip into a bigger house? When do I buy my first house? Um, they have no interest in renting. And they think that not to have a house is probably in the long run going to be very, it's going to be very, it's going to do great harm for their retirement plans. So they will get a house. Uh, so if existing sales drop, it's not because they can't afford it. They will buy a house. There, there's, there's just no ifs, ands, or buts. The, the last, you know, dec ever since World War II, and 
They built yeah. the first Levittown. They yeah. will buy a house. Yeah. You know, so, it, it's an interesting point that you make. And one of the things I've talked about is this generational wealth transfer, uh, that you have the baby boomers in their early 70s. They've got a good amount of wealth. And these estimates and, and, and I, I, you know, but the, the estimate is there's around $2 trillion a year that, that is basically going from the baby boomers to the next generation, the X generation, whatever it's called. Uh, and you see that, you, you know, whenever I go around and I speak to people, I talk about, you know, that affordability may be 10X, right? The old rule of thumb when we were young was three to four, right? No, you don't buy a house that's any more than three to four times your income. And now you see people regularly buying houses that are maybe 10X their income. But the reason is, is because there's a 75 year old trust from mom and dad that's putting down a 50% down payment. And I think that is a story told a thousand times over. And when I tell that story, when I talk about that at conferences, I see everybody in the rooms head nod because everybody seems to have seen this and experienced this. So I think it's a fair point that you make. You talked about Toronto earlier. Affordability in Toronto has been terrible for 20 years. <laughs> That's where I fall apart because Toronto amazes me. I, I you know, I, I, I agree with every concern you might have about home affordability, but it keeps going on. It, it just so, um, Toronto, Toronto makes makes both of us look ridiculous. Well, it's interesting. You know, when you think about inflation, you know, immigrants bringing in more immigrants can tamp down labor inflation. But as as housing in Canada shows you, there's a, you're trading one inflation for another. And what you, the 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 impact of all of the immigration, I believe, in Canada is just incredible housing on un, affordability, and it obviously bifurcates society. To those who own the wealth of having a house and and, and those who don't. Oh, and, and Canada was brilliant in saying, uh, you want to become a Canadian citizen? It costs you a million bucks. You know, <laughs> you know, assuming you didn't go to jail or you're not a member of the time. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I, you know, put a million bucks down, buy a house, and you're a Canadian. Yeah. So well, why not? I think right? all the all the Western European countries have that now. They're looking to attract older American people, but it's like, but you're not getting any social services because you so you gotta throw us at least a million bucks to walk in the door. Yeah, Quarter of a million, you're Portuguese citizens, you know, you're eating seafood the rest of your days. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. right. And, they, and uh, uh, I've looked at that, by the way. The uh, the, the idea is that um, uh, everywhere is doing this stuff except the United States, which doesn't, its immigration plan, whatever it is, seems to be in the opposite direction. Um, but numbers increase. I, so I, you were bringing up, you know, kind of Reaganomics, mandatory, you know, has become an increasingly larger part of our budget. Uh, it's just kind of an interesting segue. There's going to be a debate tonight at Simi Valley at the Ronald Reagan Library. Uh, you know, what what do the candidates say? And there's is there a realistic chance the GOP goes back to Reaganomics? Because, uh, you know, it seems like both parties have veered so far from that. I, I think it has to um, because either either it, it just becomes unmanageable. And I, there's this guy named Minsky who's hanging out in the wings that if the Fed's not going to provide governance and like Reaganomics or whatever you want to call it, um, you know, it's various iterations since, then we, we end up in a Ponzi phase where debt just becomes uh, just a happy days, a drug. And we end up with a, a a debt spiral such that we we do crash, and that of course was what happened in the Gilded Age, the first one before the Fed, uh, all the time, and that's why we have a Fed. They're they're supposed to prevent this. Um, so I do I do agree that that something will happen, but I don't know if it's possible to to you know to uh, back it up. Uh, it it's for for. Um, to cut the deficit, to to cut the uh, spending means like a, a trillion or two trillion a year, um, any you know within the next couple of years, which which would I think spark a you know great a great depression. It's yeah. it's an unsustainable amount. So I think what's going on here is that um, and John Cochran and 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 many other people like a problem. A lot of these. Uh, really able economists is, uh, especially if they're sort of like transactional here and now oriented, is they're, they're wedded up with uh, often a conservative um, tank 
like Cochran and all these guys sitting in Stanford. And, and so therefore everyone thinks what they're saying is political. But if you look at what he says in terms of a flow of funds, inflation is a tax. It's not, it's not a, it's not a devaluation of the money. It's just to, to make sure that if you go out and invest and buy a, a treasury, you will get par back at least. And, and that is taken care of by inflation. Um, Rob Eisner in late 80s, 90s did a lot of great work on this. So uh, then, then it was uh, and it was during the Reaganomics era. It was uh, how you know how how big is the uh, federal deficit? Uh, I can't. Remember. I think that was the title. But it, the idea is the same: is that inflation is a powerful and consistent tax that that if the country's strong, which I think the U.S. is, will solve those problems. But it won't be this year. It won't be next year. You know, rule of seven, it takes, uh, you know, seven years at 10% to double money. And in terms of long-term... No, go ahead, Drew. You know, but in terms of, like, we were talking about the IRA and the infrastructure uh, bill and all that. How much do you think that increased productivity coming from some of this legislation can be a result of decreasing long-term inflation? I I think the... um, I think all those things are, are... will be the dominant factors but like not this year mm-hmm. and not next year um i think productivity is there it always is there in the u.s um a lot of it's the function of like how the u.s relates to china you know do we allow them to have our productivity or do we take it back um the chips act the the um the productivity and real i think are in terms of very mercurial approach on what to do for the next year or two years, I would say it doesn't matter. Um, again, I want to say that everything I say is sort of, um, you know, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there, no one hears it. So if people just have enough clout and they do have enough clout day trading and trading around and stuff that until we have a, a conniption fit or a disruption, like a Minsky moment would be um, all I say might be really pretty and, and it might even be right but it probably, it might not even matter. And uh, as far as me being of importance, that, that's sort of my nightmare, but <laughs> that is something to think about. No, it, it is. It is interesting. It, it's hard to imagine that there's any political will outside of the far, far right of the house uh, to do anything. I mean, both parties are petrified of talking about the third rail of social security and Medicare. So it really does feel like we are locked into $2 trillion of debt. Let me ask you this about um, about supply and demand. Uh, Andy Constant has been making the point lately that we have a supply and demand problem and that you saw the market really start to weaken as soon as Treasury. People don't realize it's not the Fed that determines what issuance is going to look like, where along the curve the issuance is going to be. It's Janet Yellen who gets to make that call. And she made that call on July 31st. That mm-hmm. They're going to test the duration. They're going to. I think there's a five-year auction today, as a matter of fact, mm-hmm. uh, and there's going to be a lot of twos, fives, sevens, tens over the next couple quarters. Uh, what do you think of that thesis that that we could have a supply and demand problem at the supply we know and the demand we don't know? Right? Do banks need more long duration? Do China, the Saudis, the Japanese are they likely to? Uh, increase uh, their holdings of U.S. Treasuries at a time when they're currency defenders? Probably not. What, what do you make of that concern? Well, you're, you're gonna you're gonna kick me off this show if I didn't have an answer for that, right? Um, the size and the flow is obvious. It, it, it and yeah. it is as Andy says. Um, but I do have a, a pat, you know, clever answer to it. And that is that in the U.S. Treasuries being risk-free, and I think they are risk-free, there are frictions, there's sector segmentation, but supply-demand has no bearing on yield. It, it just, uh, in other words, they, they could increase the supply by a trillion or they could decrease it by a trillion, but the yield and say the U.S. Treasury tenure will be made up of NGDP. Um, and that is just that, that was, uh, you know, I, I've gotten some ideas and theory and maybe I can, I can talk in a, in a, in a clever forum, but what that really came from was that after being month in month out wrong, where 
using supply and demand of U.S. Treasuries as the main explainer of what's going to happen to U.S. Treasuries. Just wrong. It has ne- hasn't worked since uh, Wojnarowski started all this stuff in, in late 70s. It hasn't worked since Homer started to look at this. And it hasn't worked with Kaufman. The Kaufman that I think is important. Yeah. Um, and it's never worked. In other words, supply demand does not explain U.S. Treasury yield. And 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 as with the chart that you've shared uh, quite a few times, basically the correlation that matters is nominal GDP growth is going to determine where long rates are. Supply yeah. and demand is less important. Yeah. Now, just not. I would even say not important. Now, however, um, the Fed is big. It's powerful. It's real. I you know you you can't just wish it away or, or erase it. And the Fed does have the ability to administer rates. Now, Fannie Mae used to do this in the 10-year in the late 90s, um, and then they they had to stop doing it. And I don't know what, right now, if I think a bunch of bright guys at the Fed, brighter than me, get together and say, we will not let the U.S. Treasury go past 5%, right. or we want the U.S. Treasury at 0%, because we have this notion that any rate over and above a certain rate that we have in mind is an ease or a tightening. I think that's that's just, um, it just doesn't work. However, that doesn't deny that the Fed through a couple trillion of quantitative easing or a couple trillion of quantitative tightening can make it so. So they can they can create the, the, the comfort for themselves that everything's in hand because we didn't like treasuries at four, three quarters, in the 10 years, so we're going to drive it to three and a half percent. But for now, we want to really screw up the housing market. So let's let's even let it go, but we won't let it go past five percent. Like they they really believe that that's what's doing things. Right. Um and I think that gives the illusion that there's supply demand. And 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 if we do, let's say we do go to 475, the Fed starts to get worried. Would you see the Fed would NQT would actually start to monetize some of that debt? Or you would say, look, there is the fact is, is that it is the risk-free asset. And globally, whether it's insurance companies in Japan and Europe or whatever, they're going to buy that debt because it's a good price, it's a good yield, and it's the risk-free asset. Well, I think even more is that um, is that uh, treasuries are often identities. They're, they're really um, self-fulfilling prophecies, if you will. In other words, if you create a, tr- a, tr- you know, a billion worth of a treasury note, you will create a billion dollars of demand. Uh, if you rig your currency, um, Rimabini in, in China, to it, you know, six and a half or, or cheaper, you will buy a certain amount of treasuries. Otherwise, you can't do it. Um, so this, and or if you're going to rig oil, uh, you know, it costs you twenty bucks to get it out of the ground, but you want to see it at hundred. That ninety buck profit has to be invested in treasuries. Otherwise, the, the game doesn't work. That being the case, um, I don't know what percentage it is, but the the the, the chunk of money that our, our buying of treasuries that should, that gives concern is already taken care of. It's it's an autopilot, um, and then the rest of the treasuries is based, I think, on the NGDP. Now, um, that that doesn't mean there's not frictions, like you know, like a guy gets hi- fired as the head of the repo desk for Citadel, and then for two days there's a lapse and. I don't know what happens. You know, the, um, there's, there's great expertise out there um, right. that, that decide that. And it gives the idea that there's the supply demand. But I, I, I think it's just because of mismanagement or faulty current uh, policy that gives that illusion. Right. Well, I think we got to cut it here. Uh, okay. George, I could have this conversation. I think Drew could have this conversation all day long. You are a not just a wealth of information, but you've got courage to disagree with consensus. So I think that everybody really benefited from having the opportunity to listen to you. Well, if everyone who's listening to this would turn around and go buy equity, I won't look like such a horse's ass, would I? (laughs) And that is not not investment advice. (laughs) That's not investment advice. I just don't want to look like a horse's ass. (laughs) All right. Well, that'll do it. Thank you for everybody for listening. Thank you, George. Thank you, Drew. Okay, greatly complimented. I've had a lot of fun, obviously. It's great for my ego. It, any Anything I can do for you guys again, I, I'd be glad to do so. Thank you, Thanks, sir. George. Okay, guys. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host. 
and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WellFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WellFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.